you know, again, I've been studying the right for a long time. And compared to Nixon, Reagan and Bush, Trump is by far the weakest conservative right wing president we've had in the last 40 to 50 years. And we can talk about why and how I've been written about that a lot. So I won't go into all of that. It seems to me that the thing that the left has to be grappling with is precisely that weakness and what that means for the left and both the opportunities it, it, it offers, um, which I think are many more than people realize, um, and you know what some of the dangers are of, of a movement that's in decline on, on the right. Um, it seems ironic to me that we would then choose a label that, again, set aside the academic niceties of the debate and the scholarship on fascism, we, but that we would choose a label that throughout the world signifies the kind of revanchist movement unfurled and empowered and unleashed and strengthened um, for a political formation that, to my mind, is the weakest that it has been in 50 years. Hey there, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, both of whom are in the UK. Hi, guys. Hey. So uh, today, I'm very excited about this episode because we're talking to Corey Robin. I've been reading him for a very long time, following his comments on you know Facebook and whatnot. Uh, he's a leading intellectual light of the American left, really. Um, for those who aren't familiar with him, he, uh, he teaches at the City University of New York and is the author of The Reactionary Mind, which is his book on conservatism. I think there's been a second edition of that. Uh, if you haven't read it, I strongly urge you to check it out. Uh, his most recent book is The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Um, we're not talking about either of those things di- directly, but what are we talking about today, actually? Yeah, a lot, a lot to get through. Uh, a lot of great stuff. Protests, race, policing, you know, Trump. Biden, Bernie, uh, obviously an American focus of, of what we'll talk about, but also some big theoretical issues in addition to all those concrete political ones as well. Because Corey Robin has also been associated with making the case for reviving or recapturing freedom for the left, and that the left should be the main um, agents of defending and extending freedom within politics. And so, I mean, this is the you know one of the reasons, the main reason, in fact, that I'm um, excited to have Corey on. And I've also been reading him for a long time. And um, as Alex and George have uh, indicated, he's not only, I mean, he's not just a political theorist, but also a major commentator in American politics and life, writing essays, articles, and so on. Um, and is well known and well, you know, uh, engaged with seriously for being a ma- and being one of those commentators on American politics at the moment. So not just a political theorist, but also a um, political figure of the mm. American left debating the issues of the day. And so we want to get into some of that as well. Yeah, I think some of the stuff also that he's done with uh, Alex Gorovich, previous guest on the podcast, I guess just that that question of how how far you can resituate the mission of the left or the purpose of the left as one of freedom um absolutely crucial um so yeah i think to dissect some of these things with him you know yeah very much looking forward to it excellent uh, let's call him up 
Uh, Corey, great to have you. Um, and just to start off, as you're in New York, it'd be great if you could paint a picture for us about what the mood is like there in the midst of both lockdown and the Black Lives Matters protest. Yeah, so let me start with the lockdown first, because I think that in part explains the mood of, of some of the, the protests. Um, and, you know, I think the um, it, it really depends, and I, this is true, obviously, everywhere, but it really depends where you are in New York. I, I mean, the, the pandemic has really hit different neighborhoods very differentially. Um, so in the wealthier white neighborhoods, um, you know, like in Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn, um, they were hit much, much less badly. A lot of those neighbors, you know, neighborhoods, people, you know, fled, um, went to second homes. And I think the numbers are as high as 40% of the people in, in parts of Manhattan left. Wow. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's shockingly high. It almost, um, if you read some stories about the Spanish flu and pandemics in earlier centuries, it reminds me of that, you know, wealthy people just fled the cities mm -hmm. and, and that's really happened. In, in New York, um, and then in you know, and of course, poorer areas, um, and particularly black, uh, black and, and Latino communities, um, you know, they, they've just been hit extremely hard. And then on top of that, you have, of course, uh, this issue that um, people who are more working class, um, you know, have t have had to work, uh, been forced to work because they've been called essential workers. Uh, people who are more professional, um, you know, have been able to uh, stay home and, and get things done. And, and so you really have, a, you know, a tale of two cities. And um, and I, I bring I, I feel like I sort of I, I live some of that disjuncture because I, I live in uh, one of these kind of wealthier neighborhoods in Brooklyn um, and I can see the way the place is emptied out. Um, but then I also teach at the City University of New York, which is a very working class institution, uh, predominantly immigrants and, and students of color. Uh, where we've had quite a number of, of deaths. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've not yet been able to confirm this, but I think we, it's probably the university throughout the world that has been hit the hardest uh, in terms of deaths, uh, just because of the combination of being in New York and, and it being a poor uh, institution. Um, and, you know, uh, so that was really the, the, the setting um, up through I don't know, up through May, where, you know, you had this awful sense of foreboding and the constant sirens, um, uh, you know, every night, you know, you could hear them all, you know, throughout the night. Um, and and uh, it, it really exposed, you know, the kind of the, dis the disparities uh, of neoliberalism that we've, you know, we know about, but it kind of brought it out in very stark relief, um, you know, which is that if you uh, were rich, you could you know, flee and be safe, or at least stay home. And if you weren't rich, um, and, we're, and you know we're working class, you you know just left to die. Um, and at the same time, you know, without any feeling of a way out of it, um, you know, throughout all of this, you know, the the refrain we've heard is, you know, we're waiting on Cuomo, who's the governor of New York, a Democratic governor of New York, and we're waiting on Trump. Uh, so there's a, a I, I can't you know convey the sort of uh, the sense of powerlessness and sort of abject inaction that has been imposed, uh, you know, on the entire city. So that was the mood up through, uh, through the end of May, early June. And then these protests exploded um, and, and, you know, really seemingly felt like they came out of nowhere, although, of course, that's never the case. Um, and, you know, while there's a lot of specifics about these protests that, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk some about, I think the thing that, in terms of you asked about the mood, 
I think one of the things that they did is just sort of create this sudden sense of agency um, uh, of, of the possibility of momentum and of ordinary people, for lack of a better word, um, being able to take action. Mm-hmm. Um, I only went to some of the, you know, the, the more family friendly uh, parts of these protests, but, um, you know, the kind of the multiracial solidarity that was on display uh, and then in, in particularly in the, in the more kind of violent protests where there was real confrontation with the police, um, there was, a, you know, just uh, both reading about it and, you know, watching it, just a, a real sense of um, power um, that I, I think is almost a kind of mirror image of that, of that the, the mood that I was describing just a second ago um, during the pandemic. And so, which we, we're still in. Um, so, you know, you at, overall, if we're, I'm going to step back and I'm, I'm sorry, this is such a lengthy answer. No, it, it, it's, it, it's it, very it, interesting to hear that, that account. Um, in, in fact, I mean, I, I wanted to ask what your read on the thrust of the protest was, but I'm actually curious about how um, the issue has been negotiated, um, you know, amongst protesters, but also just amongst the wider public as, as a whole, which is that, you know, you have this broad support for the lockdown and then kind of a breaking of the lockdown because of the BLM protests and how that kind of gets negotiated or how that how you've seen that be negotiated uh, in, in New York. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, it certainly has been a subject of some um, discussion and um, contestation. Um, you know, I would say that uh, what's interesting, at least in New York, I can't speak you know, throughout the country, is it seems that the uh, there's a real sense of, uh, you know, people all are wearing masks. Um, the One of the protests that I was at, there was actually quite a bit of social distance. It helps when the police are not, you know, raining down upon you and yeah. creating, a, you know, collapsing social distance. Um, but it's something that I think people were, you know, and continue to be uh, very sensitive to. Um, but it, you know, while it's something that people are, I think, arguing about a lot on social media, it doesn't seem like it has created too much of a sense of dissonance. And, and why that is, I don't know. And what it means, I, I couldn't really tell you because I'm not in very close touch uh, with people um, who are the protagonists here. But I will say, you know, I, I think there's a, a, a pretty um, sharp consciousness of, of the problem. Um, and you know, you see a lot of very elaborate um, measures for, um, like I said, for social distancing and for hand sanitizers and all the rest of it. So it's it's not a kind of blithe indifference to that. Um, there's an awareness of it, um, and you know, to be honest, I mean, the, the thing that I think has been more concerning is, and we're gonna have to wait and see, is um, what what's the fallout in terms of the spread of, of exposure and so forth, particularly from people who were. Um, thrown into jail or paddy wagons and things like that, where that's where you really see um, the real um, possibility of spread. So it's 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 a complicated issue. It's something that, as I said, it was really debated on social media. But on the ground, it seems like people are just kind of doing their best to make sense of, of both mm. things at once without without um, dishonoring either side of that. Debate. Yeah, yeah. And no, I mean, at least here um, in Brazil, it's been, or in Sao Paulo at any rate, it's been um, a sort of agonized discussion where it's been mainly the right, which has been out protesting kind of in pro-Bolsonaro protests, but uh, the left has been relatively coy about protesting so far. I think there's only been one or two mm-hmm. weekends of that. Um, 
Presumably, but, though, um, just to um, on the point about the protests and the riots and so on. I mean, presumably, though, the lockdown feeds into it as well for the same reasons that it does everywhere. Um, uh, people being cooped up, um, the kind of the frustrations. Perhaps people have been furloughed, or um, they've lost their jobs, or they're maybe they've you know they're still working, but in um, these kind of very strange conditions. Um, and that general sense of restraint and suffocation and anxiety about the future, I'm sure all of that adds up to a combustible mix. And mm -hmm. that must surely be part of the picture as well, right? I agree. And I, I mean, I would also say, you know, adding to that as well, there is, um, and this, and this, what I'm about to say can always go one of two ways. Um, but, but there's also a sense of, um, that we've been left, um, especially if you're, you know, working class and uh, and poor, that you've essentially been kind of left to your own devices. Um, there is so little leadership on the issue of the pandemic, um, you know, and, and part of the problem always with the lockdown was is that there was never any kind of real, and there continues not to be, particularly in the United States, real attempt at any kind of uh, uh, notion of dealing with the economic fallout of it at all. And the message, and now things are opening back up again uh, throughout the country, even in New York. And and the message is very much you're kind of on your own, um, yeah. and you know that can breed a kind of nihilism and a kind of individualism and escapism and all kinds of really really terrible things. But it can also generate, in addition to all of the things, I don't I don't know. I think it was Phil, you who were just talking. I'm I'm trying to place, or was it George? Um, yeah, it, it was, was me. I just about the combustible mix, yeah. Okay, oh, I see, now I can see who's speaking based on the, okay. Um, you know, but you, but, but in addition to the things that you, you were describing, George, I, I do think there is a, a kind of sense of, um, not, not that, that because you're on your own, people are gonna take things into their own hands. Um, and I've just been, you know, kind of really impressed, to be honest with you, um, at the spirit of defiance. Um, not in a kind of, you know, I don't care about laws, I don't care about the social order in general, uh, quite the opposite, in fact. There's, I, I think, a kind of very disciplined, I mean, disciplined mm -hmm. sense of defiance um, and kind of collective care and solidarity um, that I've seen mm -hmm. um, that is, 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 is so striking because um, there's also a kind of sense of leader, uh, leaderlessness and kind of lack of organizational structure, which I think has its problems uh, long term, uh, but but nevertheless, there's kind of a, I, I think it's just a genuine sense of solidarity, not in an anodyne mm. sentimental sense, but of you know, yeah. So, so actually, yeah, I think this leads on really nicely to something which Alex touched on earlier, which is I guess what's your read on the thrust of the pro uh, the protests is the focus more on policing or on race? Do you think that there's in terms of the impact, do you think that there could be some serious reforms that will be undertaken now or in the near future? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a uh, complicated question with with lots of different parts. So I'll just start. Yeah, talking. sorry. But, no, 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 it's totally fine. But just I'm only saying this because if I go on too long, feel free to interrupt me because um, I could I could go on for too long. Um, you know, the, the protests are clearly about both policing and race and, and also, I think, a lot more than that as well. Um, I think if you, um, uh, 
listen to the protesters. And, you know, I have to say, I think the reporting has been, you know, even from the mainstream media has been quite good. You know, a lot of very on the ground uh, interviews with, uh, with, with people who are, you know, out there doing this. Um, um, and if you listen to what people are saying in the protest, you know, they're talking an awful lot about policing and they're talking an awful lot about racial inequality and racist policing. Um, but what I've been, you know, sort of more struck by uh, is how much they're talking about the larger political and economic order that gives rise right. um, to the problem of racial policing. Um, and this is not something that you would, you know, just get from, you know, in passing commentary on social media, but in, in terms of actual media and, and actual journalism, it's it's striking to me, frankly, um, and particularly when you listen to, to, to the younger protests, um, just how much they're they're making the connections between inadequate social solidarity, whether it's at the level of the state or the community, and hyper-policing um, mm. oriented on race. There's been an awful lot of discussion about uh, where state resources and community resources are going. Um, and, and one of the things that's so impressive to me about this um, is that you know so much of the discussion about neoliberalism, the kind of um, uh, just sort of a commonsensical discussion is, you know, well, the state is pulled back and the market steps forward. Mm. Um, but what we're seeing now, um, and, and that was never true. I mean, that was always a kind of very superficial understanding of things. Yeah. Uh, but what 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 I do think these protests, uh, in, in a way, oddly enough, more than Occupy did, um, more than Occupy, I think these protests have really said the real issue is, is how the state has been reoriented under neoliberalism. Um, and that rather than building social and economic infrastructure, um, you know, everything from schools and hospitals and investment in, in working class communities and in jobs, um, instead, um, resources have gone to policing. Now, this isn't just a simple, you know, one to one ratio of budgets. And, and you know, obviously, it's a lot more complicated. But I think the basic message that what the last 50 years have been about is about decreasing um, I hate the word investment, but it's, it's in some ways it is about investment um, from the state in social infrastructure and increasing reliance on punitive um, uh, policing measures, which over, you know, uh, tend to fall disproportionately on uh, black and brown communities, but are really about policing, um, you know, poor people. Uh, more generally. And I, uh, the, the fact that a lot of the discussion, you know, about defunding the police has focused on budgets, I find very salutary um, because so much of the left has been, you know, kind of disinterested um, in the materiality of everyday life, um, the role of, of just of money and material resources. Uh, and so when you, when you have this kind of focus on budgets, and what the state has been doing, uh, it, you know, it's it's that Schumpeter famous line, um, you know, that, that, that you can read, um, you know, the history of a society through its its budget, the, the budget or the, the fiscal apparatus is the thunder of world history. Um, and my hope, and this is, we're still very early in this, is that this conversation, which begins about race and policing, um, has the capacity to explode a lot bigger questions. And mm. I think if you listen to people on the ground, that's what they're trying to do, whether they succeed, whether this gets co-opted and all the rest, that I don't know. But so, um, yeah. So. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I, I actually wanted to 
push you a little bit on on what you see um, as the the strengths and limitations of precisely of this idea of either defund the police or abolish the police because I think I mean I, it's hard to judge from the outside and you know following on social media of course kind of gives you a relatively warped picture of what's actually going on um, so how do you how do you see this I mean I'm, I'm relatively skeptical of the idea of abolish the police res defund the police I can see a lot more uh, mileage in that so how do you see that sort of playing out and just like, to add a rider to that Corey this is Philip just to add a rider to that um what seems to me so striking about, you know, it's this astonishingly kind of radical slogan that has gained such traction, abolish the police. And but, you know, at the same time, as many critics have already pointed out in the contemporary context, without the infrastructure of um, uh, popular or working class radical politics, inevitably abolish would mean privatize effectively. Um, and it would um, just kind of collapse into the neoliberal status quo. You would end up with um, effectively a greater recourse to, um, you know, private security forces of various kinds. Um, and that you would see, in fact, a further kind of erosion of precisely that public provision, paradoxically, mm -hmm. that you just mentioned. So I was curious about the you know, the kind of the convoluted paradoxes of this moment with, mm -hmm. like I say, radical slogans that could potentially backfire in an unexpected and terrible way. And obviously, most American voters don't support abolishing the police. Um, right. So I was wondering if you could untangle some of that for us in the American context. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to be careful here because I don't feel like I'm, um, you know, an activist in this movement. And um, uh, so I, I can't I don't want to you know put words in people's mouths and all that kind of stuff. Um, but my sense is that, you know, if, for instance, if, you know, Black Lives Matter um, has a platform. And when you look at it, it's actually quite a, a kind of radical vision of social democracy. It, it, it doesn't get that much attention in the media. But from the people I've spoken to, I, I think it really plays um, quite a, a, a role in um in, 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 in the in sort of the vision of what this movement is about. And from what I can see, it's really about transferring resources and reimagining the role of the state. Now, I know there is a debate among certain activists about abolish the police, defund the police. Um, and um, how that plays out, again, I, I, I think um, it, it's sort of it, it's too soon to tell. I mean, frankly, I mean, uh, just parenthetically, my bigger concern is not that people actually go ahead and do, you know, abolish the police and we get the kind of privatized dystopia you're describing. Um, I just it, my bigger fear is, is that, you know, there'll just be kind of pretty anodyne measures that will come out of this. So, for instance, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. About a week ago, uh, the Minneapolis City Council got an awful lot of attention because they voted to disband the police and replace it with a kind of more community-oriented safety program. Um, if you just, I just went to check, so what's really going on with this proposal, uh, which was voted up a week ago, and instead what's happening is consultants are now being brought in. There's a group called Benchmark Analytics, and they're doing all of this long-term tracking of individual police behavior. It's a very individualist and, and, and not a structural solution at all, and it involves the consultant and the NGO class, which is the worst thing. Um, or not the worst thing, but one of the worst things um, that can happen. So I think, you know, the, probably if we're being realistic, the bigger problem is um, there's a lot of, you know, uh, fervor and, 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 and sloganeering, 
um, and intense kind of um, mm. emotion and, and, and political action. And then when the dust settles, um, it's, it's these, you know, these horrible, you know, high price consultants who were brought in yeah. and do that kind of bullshit, um, you know, and, and which is the other side, you know, of course, of, of neoliberalism. So I, I'm, I'm honestly more concerned about that. What does give me hope um, is, you know, again, you know, like in New York City right now, there's movement among schools activists, um, you know, public in the public schools, which are, you know, incredibly unequal. Um, and in, um, and, you know, the funding has been so low, aggressively, you know, using this moment to say, you know, these are resources that we, you know, should be now putting in uh, to schools. Um, there's a huge movement in CUNY where I teach, City University, about not cutting back, um, but on adjunct budgets, but instead expanding. And again, using the moment to say, now is the time to invest in communities. Uh, and right. so I, I think, you know, this is again where social media debates can be so uh, misleading and aggravating, um, and and so I, I think that's both the most promising, the more promising side of this, and I think the more dangerous side is mm. really just this all getting, you know, this moment getting wasted and a lot of idiotic yeah. consultants and, and and that kind of <laughs> right. stuff. Right. Yeah, I can see that. Right. Yeah, and thanks, Corey. I, so we had some. Uh, we had a few questions for you on on party politics and I guess also your take on the upcoming presidential election. Um, probably to, to start with, I think a lot of a lot of people frame um, Trump as a essentially as a as a fascist, either with or without qualification. But could you restate for us and our listeners your argument about Trump not being a fascist? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that the easiest, simplest way is just to start right now in the present moment. Um you know, from the time that Trump got elected, there's been this foreboding and this and this statement, this fear that all that he is waiting for is an emergency, a kind of a national security crisis, yeah. some kind of public emergency, and then you know he'll go full on fascist. I mean that that's been the more um, sober version of the argument. Some people have said, <laughs> yeah, from 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 the get go. Um, and, you know, uh, but, but this is what we've heard. And, 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 and people have said, then you're going to see full on suspension of civil liberties, suppression of the media, uh, criminalization of you know, all, all the traditional things that fascists do when they assume control uh, of the state. Yeah. Um, and the fact is, we are now in the middle of um, two, three, in fact, uh, extraordinary crises. Uh, we have a public health crisis. Um, in the United States, where over a hundred thousand people um, have died, uh, you know, just an extraordinary public health crisis, an extraordinary economic crisis with levels of unemployment um, that, you know, oftentimes in in the past were associated with not just the rise of fascist parties but uh, the election of fascist parties, um, and a now this this sort of cascading role of public protests and attacks on the fundamentals of the police state. Uh, and with a kind of urban uh, disorder uh, and chaos that in the past um, would really uh, see the, the you know presidents of all stripes sending in federal troops. Mm -hmm. And what has been most amazing uh, about Trump, uh, uh, you know, particularly on the first two, which is you know the public health and and I'll, and, and the economic crisis, uh, and I'll get to the other one in a minute, um, is how much he has. Um, withdrawn 
uh, from the exercise of state yeah. power. Um, not just disclaiming uh, any sense of responsibility, but refusing all the opportunities that one would think uh, somebody who is of a fascist political stripe uh, would be uh, engaged in. Um, you know, the media is more um, outspoken than ever. Um, you know, in fact, just when, a year or two ago, there was a study in The Intercept, um, the, the newspaper, the, 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 newspaper or the website, uh, comparing Trump's control over the media to, to George W. Bush. And it was no comparison. I mean, George W. Bush completely intimidated the media and was much more able to suppress oppositional voices. Um, so, you know, the, there's nothing with the media, um, far from suspending Congress and suspending the legislature. If anything, it's been Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. Nancy Pelosi is the Democratic Speaker of the House. Mitch McConnell is the Senate, the Republican Senate Majority Leader. Uh, if anything, they're the ones who are choosing not to have Congress in session. Um, there, you know, elections had been happening, uh, and not only that, uh, we're seeing left-wing politicians elected. Uh, there's been a, there was a round of of, of state um, uh, elections um, quite recently in, in in New Mexico and in Pennsylvania uh, and in Washington D.C. You saw, you know, uh, elections of 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 uh, left uh, progressive figures, and you know, on the policing crisis. I mean, this got a, a fair amount of attention because Trump did make a lot of the rhetorical gestures about you know sending in the troops um, and and saying that if governors and mayors didn't get their cities in order he would uh, and he said this uh, but outside of D.C. Washington D.C. which is a federal jurisdiction um, he hasn't you know done much of anything except um, you know bluster on Twitter every day law and order law and law and order law and order um, <laughs> the violence that we have seen the really scary stuff that gets all the headlines and the attention are in cities where you have uh, either, you know, Democratic mayors and or Democratic governors of states uh, who are mm -hmm. in control of those police. Um, so, um, you know, it's it's just... It's you wait, you wait for a Reichstag fire and three come along at once and he doesn't help <laughs> on a single one. <laughs> you know, and, and, the, and you know, you, you, you brought up the Reichstag fire. I mean, the, I, that's the phrase we've heard, the Reichstag moment, the Reichstag moment, the Reichstag moment. And now, you know, I should say I, I've never believed this um, because, you know, Trump has had other moments where he could have um, uh, played this card and, and he didn't. Um, but I think this one is it's pretty clear, you know, um, Lyndon Johnson, you know, and federal troops, like, and it was extraordinarily violent, uh, the counterinsurgency mm. in the cities in 1967. Um, now, if you, if you want to say Lyndon Johnson's administration was fascist, I mean, leftists did at the time, but most people today wouldn't, wouldn't say something like that. So, you know, the yeah. stuff that we do see is just, is a very traditional feature of the state and um, uh, doesn't really require um, anything like the fascist label to understand. And the, what's more interesting, given the predictions, is is what we haven't uh, seen from Trump. So I guess just to maybe to take a step back, um, what do you think is the political function or consequences of describing Trump as a fascist or what ha what have they been? I guess, why is it why is it politically an important position to take um, that Trump isn't, in fact, a fascist? I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons uh, why it's important. Um, the first is that empirically, I just think it's wrong. Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's interesting in this hyper-politicized moment, everybody's always interested in the political valence of an argument and the actual empirical 
data doesn't really matter very much, but I think just it's important, um, you know, just to say that empirically it's wrong. Politically, I, I think there's a couple of um, of, of reasons. Um, and, um, and first, let me uh, disavow one of the reasons that I think people think it's politically important. I don't think this is true. Um, so let me say what it, why it's politically not important. Some people fear that if you use the fascist label, it's just being used to authorize support for Joe Biden and a kind of centrist democratic thing. And, and that's true sometimes that that, that sure. is what it does. But I think there are many people who use the fascist label who aren't interested in that kind of politics at all. Um, anarchists, DSA, democratic socialists, a whole bunch of leftists are, are, you know, firmly believe in the fascist label, but they're not using it to authorize centrism. So I don't, I don't think that's uh, the problem. So I'll, what I do think is the problem um, is, is threefold, actually, the political problem with the, with the label. I mean, the first thing is that it tends to separate Trump um, uh, from more mainstream Republican and conservative movements uh, uh, and, 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 and policies. Um, you know, I've been writing about the right, uh, for almost 20 years now. Um, and, you know, long before Trump, I, I came to this argument that the right was essentially a reactionary formation, that it's revanchist and it's populist. It's opposed oftentimes to established institutions. And we, I don't want to, you know, I've talked about that a lot, so I don't need to hear. Um, and, but but the reason I bring it up is is that there is an effort to separate Trump from that history, and I think that's very um, dangerous and wrongheaded in many many ways. Um, so that's the first. Um, the second is is that people want to use you know the reason why people turn to the fascist label. I mean, there's we can get into a lot of academic arguments about it, but I think we just be honest and frank about why people turn to it. And that is that they that it signifies a, a, a kind of, um, you know, the beating heart of white supremacy and the beating heart of the nation, and that it somehow speaks for some popular dispensation that is out there. And I think that's very misleading, because what Trump is overwhelmingly about is a minor, minoritarian uh, dispensation. Um, he is a, a president who depends upon institutions that are profoundly anti-democratic and that were meant mm. to, to protect numerical minorities, um, uh, numerical minorities, not racial or ethnic minorities. And by that, I mean the Senate, right. the Electoral College, and the Supreme Court. Uh, these are the pillars of his support. He is not sustained by a popular uh, populist movement. And, and so I think that's uh, something that's, that's very important. Um, and then I think then we come to the to the last part of this. Um, once you realize that Trump is sustained by things like the Senate, the Supreme Court, uh, and the Electoral College, um, what you see is that ultimately what he's really sustained by is the United States Constitution. Um, that that these are institutions that are part of a haloed, uh, sacrosanct document in this country. Um, and for many people who defend Trump as fascist, the answer to that is defend the Constitution. Mm. And that is a profoundly wrongheaded uh, approach mm. because long after Trump is gone, and I said this in 2017, and I said this, I think, three or four months into um, his regime, and it hardly took a, it wasn't any kind of prescience on my part. It's just if you know anything about American history. Long after he is gone, what will be the caretaker and custodian of his legacy will be the United States courts and the Supreme Court. That's will right. be the thing that will protect him. 
And if you are serious about, uh, if you think, I mean, I think most people now, uh, aside from, from some from some very, very centrist people, but most people now realize that Trump represents something larger and bigger than just himself. If you are serious about gutting that and getting rid of that, you have to take on the American Constitution. You have to take on the Supreme Court. Um, you have to take on all these things. Yeah. That many of these defenders of this thesis thought were the things that were protecting us and, in fact, attacked Trump because he was eroding them. And we're mm. going to have to do our own massive form of norm erosion. And so I think in all these different ways, the Trump is fascism thesis, um, besides being empirically wrong. And, uh, let me just say, sorry, if you don't mind, just one more thing about this. because No, it, no, it, that's it, yeah, it very, very, very so clear. Much, um, is that, you know, again, I've been studying the right for a long time and compared to Nixon. Reagan and Bush, Trump is by far the weakest conservative right-wing president we've had in the last 40 to 50 years. And we can talk about why and how I, and I've been written, written about that a lot, so I won't go into all of that. It seems to me that the thing that the left has to be grappling with is precisely that weakness and what that means for the left and both the opportunities it, it, it offers, um, which I think are many more than people realize um, and, you know, what some of the dangers are uh, of a movement that's in decline on, on the right. Um, it seems ironic to me that we would then choose a label that, again, set aside the academic niceties of the debate and the scholarship on fascism, we, but, but that we would choose a label that throughout the world signifies a kind of revanchist movement unfurled and empowered and unleashed and strengthened. Um, for a political formation that, to my mind, is the weakest that it has been in 50 years. And that seems like just a mm. just at the basic level of kind of discourse just seems like a very, very wrongheaded move to me. Absolutely. I think you're spot on, Corey. And I suppose to draw out what you're saying, the notion that Trump is weak and I think this uh, it's been a consistent theme of your writing to some degree, reaching back to the reactionary mind, your point that the right is, um, it organizes itself around opposition to the left. And even to that extent, it's still ultimately incoherent in the way in which that it mobilizes itself in opposition to the left. So doesn't this point about the profound weakness of the Trump administration, doesn't it ultimately redound to re-emphasize the weakness of the left at the moment and precisely the fact that um you know in their own minds he's um transmogrified into this kind of overwhelming fascist authoritarian figure bearing down on them when in fact he's much more of a pygmy yeah uh, i mean this has been um you know it's, it's strange because when i have argued that trump is weak thesis uh, many people keep saying it's an optimistic claim and it's hopeful. And I and I think to myself, what are you missing in my argument? Because part of why the right is so weak is because it won its battle against the left. Um, if you uh, and I'm, I'm, I'll be a little bit more local with the American context, I mean, which I I have been throughout here, um, but uh, you know, the, the the modern American right um, came about in response first and foremost, to the workers' movement, um, uh, the labor movement um, of the 1920s and the 1930s. That was its first and primal antagonist, and um, it's safe to say that it won that battle. And then it's secondarily uh, the black freedom struggle uh, of the 1960s. And 
for the most part, it won that battle as well. Um, the United States today is more segregated, racially segregated than it was in the 1980s. Uh, you know, the, the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap, all of these things. So the right won uh, big time. Um, and the left has not come to terms um, with that defeat. Uh, you know, you see people say, no, uh, you know, the, the victory of Obama and, you know, that empowered the right. And, you know, it's certainly the case that there are parts of the American right, uh, many parts that were, you know, uh, very um, set on edge by the victory of Obama. And yet, uh, compared to the kind of empowerment the right got when it was facing um, the sort of dispossession, the limited dispossession that both the black freedom struggle and the workers movement in the United States were able to achieve through the New Deal uh, and the civil rights movement, um, the right was fully able to mobilize against that because those were real victories by the left. And the right came back you know, with such intense ferocity. And not just at emotional level, I mean, because that also mistakes what the right is about. You know, it com completely reinvented itself intellectually, politically, institutionally, organizationally. Um, and it won a comprehensive victory, you know, this kind of counter-revolution. Uh, and so the left has really, really been defeated. Um, and then once you see that, I think, um, as you say, you know, the kind of the, the theatrics of Trump become much, much more intelligible. Uh, and it makes sense that he is tweeting all day because yeah. that is what the right, you know, in many ways uh, has become. Uh, and not because, uh, you know, of anything, you know, heroic on the left, far from it. It's because mm. the left has been so defeated. So I guess linking all of this to the the prospect of a, of a Biden victory, which at the moment the polls seem to be indicating, how do you think the, the left in its in its sort of weakness or defeat might respond to this victory? Yeah. Also, given, given I guess, how, how deeply they seem to have waded into these arguments about Trump destroying the institutions of the republic. Yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm always, you know, leery of making predictions because I'm so wrong half the time, more than half the time. Um, but I suspect you're going to see a, a kind of very mixed response. Um, uh, and by that, I mean, I, I do think there are going to be uh, many people who are going to want a kind of return to the institutions, a kind of rest, a, a restoration. Um, and that certainly fits with Biden's profile. Um, and 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 there are already you're seeing in parts of the Democratic Party, for instance, uh, uh, a kind of concern about the debt and the deficit. So, you know, you could hear the rumblings of austerity politics, um, which um, I think is a smaller part of the Democratic Party than it used to be. But nevertheless, in alliance with the Republicans can do a shitload of damage. So I think that will be definitely one part, a kind of respect for the institutions and all the rest of it. I do think one of the things that's been interesting is that there's been a shift, not just among sort of leftists, but I think even among some liberals, to start questioning some of these issues about, um, for instance, the Senate and the filibuster and the Supreme Court. Uh, right. And I do think there, I, I think so the, the, the long or the short answer to your question is there's gonna be, I think a real battle. Um, you saw the rumblings of this, frankly, in the Obama administration, but I think it's gonna be even more pitched um, because um, I do think there is a larger portion uh, of the left and even among liberals that um, are now a little bit clearer about the right and its willingness 
um, even though it's weak, to play what's called procedural hardball. I, I hate these sports metaphors, but this is the discourse. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, We're wedded uh, to them. And yeah. so, you know, I, I think there'll be less patience um, for the idea of sort of bipartisan cooperation, which you heard so much of um, with Obama. Which side will win um, is an open question. I mean, I still think I, you know, bet on the kind of Biden centrist side of things because I think they have a tremendous amount of power on the left. I mean, the left just doesn't have it. Uh, mm. as, and we saw that in this primary, um, you know, the left is still weak. Yeah, actually, just to, to, to maybe just quickly push push you on this before moving on to some, I guess, bigger theoretical questions. Um, how How would you account for for Bernie's defeat, this is something which we've um, touched on in in previous episodes. So it'd be good to get your take on it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I don't have a very good answer to, except to, to basically restate the premise of the question, which is, uh, you know, Bernie was just defeated because, um, you know, the left is fairly weak. I mean, you still have an awful lot of Democratic voters um, who are fairly centrist, uh, you know, uh, even conservative. Um, many of them older, white and black. Um, and, you know, the generational divide is intense um, in, within the Democratic Party. And uh, there's, you know, it's just that this battle has not been won. Um, and, you know, I can get a little primitive about these things uh, in my explanations, which is, you know, that um, we can get all sort of, uh, you know, and there's been a lot of um, autopsies of the Sanders campaign. It did, it did it go too culturally yeah. left and, and all the rest of it? And or was it not left enough? I mean, and the truth of the matter is, is just we just don't have, um, you know, a lot of these ideas are still scary to a lot of people. We don't have the votes. Um, I think that's changing. Um, but, you know, the 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 I don't know what the word is, the, the kind of distortion and. Um, defeat of the left is very comprehensive, and it's just going to take some time uh, to kind of reorient people. Um, and I mean, I think we're beginning to see it, even in this pandemic. Um, you know, the fact that the, the kind of numbers that people have been willing to spend and throw around, in, in terms of these economic packages. I mean, just the. I mean, yeah. again, this gets very simplistic, but like. You know, during the stimulus debate under Obama, you know, they, they could never get to that number one trillion because it was just too big, too big. Well, you know, they've now spent trillions of dollars um, uh, on this pandemic thing. So we crossed the Rubicon. So I, I do feel like things are opening up and it's just just yeah, it's going to take a lot of time. The, no, the, the old the old models were thrown away surprisingly, surprisingly quickly, yes. which leaves leaves space hopefully for some new ones. Alex. Yes. Yeah, so, um, well, now we should transition, I guess, to the, well, we've been going for a little while, but now now's the real meaty stuff, uh, which is uh, the arguments around freedom, uh, which uh, you've made, Corey, um, specifically the left argument for freedom and arguments uh, around the idea that even something like Medicare for All is or should be framed in terms of freedom. Um, so in a recent uh, article that you wrote with with Alex Gurevich, previous guest on this podcast, um, that you know the the economy should be cast not as a realm of freedom of you know individual choice and liberty, but really as uh, as a realm of unfreedom. And specifically, that the forms of unfreedom that you get in the market in the economy are subordination and limitation. So I wondered, if, first of all, is to get us started on this sort of section, if you could explain us how what those terms mean and how uh, how the economy is a is a realm of unfreedom. Yeah. 
So the first thing that I always begin with, um, this comes both from my own political experience and research long uh, before my first book was on the politics of fear, and where I always begin when I think about unfreedom is the workplace. Um, This has changed somewhat over the years, but throughout the years, I've always been astonished at how little attention, uh, subordination in the workplace, the kind of domination, um, the legally prescribed and legally authorized domination uh, in the workplace, how mm-hmm. uh, systemic it actually is. Uh, in recent years, I think this has now begun to resonate with more people. But when I, I first began talking about this in the 1990s, um, and it was it was this terra incognita, I mean, that, that people just did not think about the workplace as an institution of domination and rule at all. Um, I assume, you know, for your listeners that I don't have to rehearse those arguments, but it, it really is quite extensive. And so that's where we begin our piece as well, with just the um, the in, the intensiveness of subordination and, and domination in the workplace, where um, just living with a kind of rule and a kind of an authority um, that you wouldn't see outside of a prison or the military, um, but is is the common feature of everyday life for so many people. Uh, the subordination of the workplace. But then you step outside of the workplace. And, um, and, and, and sorry, one more thing, because you had asked me about sort of market discipline. And I, and I think the market is a word that is, you know, both very helpful, but also sometimes a little bit obscuring because, you know, the workplace, even though it's a part of the marketplace, is nevertheless, it, um, it, it, it's not like the paradigmatic, yeah. you know, customer and a grocer. Uh, yeah, there's some uh, people in, trading in things. Yeah, good. yeah, exactly. Um, it, it really is, um, you know, kind of like a, an old world, old regime form of submission um, to authority. And um, so I, I, I just always want to bring us back to that because it's so easily glossed over and forgotten. But the second part of it, which is, I think, gets us into the marketplace a little bit more, um, is about the intensive spread of market discipline um, to so many spheres of social life and social goods. And, you know, this argument is, is probably a little bit more familiar um, uh, to, to listeners, but um, it's just, it's striking between the combination of uh, indebtedness and then the use of market mechanisms to deal with everything from schools to, to healthcare to retirement, um, all these ways in which, you know, we are, um, you know, pushed into being market actors. Um, it's it's interesting, you know, uh, just parenthetically during this stimulus package, you know, just the uh, the issue, the sheer issuance of a check. Uh, and I'm not somebody who thinks, uh, you know, uh, guaranteed, you know, UBI or anything like that is the panacea. But just, you know, the sheer issuance of a check without a lot of, you know, kind of market rigmarole um, is just a kind of breathtaking experience um, that I don't think, you know, most people, aside from the very rich who get dividends, are, are used to. Um, so this the spread of that market discipline, I think, has been intense. And then one more thing I'll say about this, and then and I'll, I'll, I'll um, uh, stop, is that um, the thing that Alex and I wrote about once we laid out these uh, different features is if you go back to Hayek, um, you know, who I think is safely taken as one of the key theoreticians uh, of the neoliberal turn, what's most striking um, is that there's no obfuscation of this in the writing. It's all there plain as day. Uh, that the real agenda of neoliberalism is uh, the real understanding of, 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 of freedom in neoliberalism is not freedom of, to choose, which is the famous um, Milton Friedman title, freedom to choose. It's being forced to choose. 
um, that it is only under conditions of severe constraint. When one, uh, when one is really thrown up against the wall of material circumstance and facing economic exigency of some sort, it's only in those moments um, it, 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 that one um, is forced to choose and really reveals one's ultimate moral preferences and one's ultimate moral self. Um, and so it's it's a very it's similar to the kind of um, uh, battlefield ethics that you saw in a lot of fascist uh, you know sort of war uh, mythology that you know mm. in the foxhole you have to reveal who you are uh, in, under these conditions of life and death and for I think for uh, for Hayek um, it's really um, in these conditions of extremis uh, facing material constraint whether the constraint of the marketplace or constraint of the workplace that one reveals oneself as to who one is. Uh, and that's freedom. Um, and yeah. what we believe is that we, you know, need a, a notion of freedom that not only counteracts that, but also, you know, both liberates you from the economy, uh, but also liberates you within the economy. And, you know, but so neoliberalism, in a sense, is manufacturing. It requires um, the recreation of scarcity. Yeah. in order to motivate itself or to give the kind of moral weight and gravitas to its mission. Is that right? So it has to kind of create scarcity through um, the extension of the market to um, all of these domains from which it had previously been beaten back or restricted or curbed in order to give um, this kind of existential dimension to freedom, which it had hitherto lacked. Would that be Absolutely. right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, that's very well put. And I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I think people on the left have begun to, you know, pay more attention to these arguments on the right and so forth. Uh, but I, I do think there's still this sort of um, facile notion on many part people in the left that somehow or another what the right is about is, you know, this kind of very individualistic uh, freedom, this liberty, you know, this vulgar libertarian notion of freedom. But they miss this element that you said, you know, of existential choice and of, of manufactured scarcity um, that, you know, that the right really believes only under those conditions, um, you know, are, uh, will sort of individual freedom be, be, uh, be expressed. So I, I actually wanted to ask, um, maybe we could return a little bit, because I think people are familiar with um, the notion, I mean, as you've discussed, you know, effectively, I guess to put it in, in more basic terms, you know, that people are aware of this idea of being alone in the market, of being forced to choose. Um, and that that represents a pretty miserly idea of humanity, of, of freedom. Um, but the notion of, of subordination in the workplace, I mean, you said that people probably are familiar with the examples, but actually it might be worth, because you do mention a couple in the articles and in other things you've written, um, some of the ways in which, uh, you know, domination inheres in, within uh, a large yeah. corporation, within in the workplace. So can you maybe spell out some examples of how that works? Sure. Um, and let me say it's really the workplace because it's not simply large corporations. I mean, these, these, yeah, these yeah. Uh, uh, small shops are these, you know, extraordinary. Arguably worse, yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's probably definitely worse. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the early pieces I wrote was, um, I think was called, um, Liberty and Laboratory, um, which was about the history of the bathroom break, uh, in the United States. Um, and I, you know, again, I don't know what it's like in other countries, so this could be a very U.S. specific 
uh, story on this one, but um, what's, uh, you know, it was not until, believe it or not, the 1990, uh, 1998, um, when Bill Clinton um, issued an executive order, um, it's not even a law, it's an executive order, so it could be rescinded, um, that uh, workers were guaranteed the right, if they had to uh, go to the bathroom, uh, to urinate, uh, that they would be allowed to go. And what was happening, and I haven't looked at this more recently, so I don't know what the more you know recent literature is on this, but that what was happening is you would just have many workers, predominantly um, uh, Latino uh, and Black, uh, predominantly women, um, who were essentially forced to wear adult diapers uh, because they were not, they were just were not free uh, to go to the bathroom when they had to go. And, you know, I always think of this example because, again, I think both the light, right and the left sometimes converge on these, you know, notions that, uh, you know, um, the right defends this sort of very um, simplistic Hobbesian notion of freedom as, uh, you know, freedom as physical motion of the body. Yeah. And the left, you know, sort of takes that for granted. But the truth of the matter is that most basic physical mobility of the body and bodily functions um, are, are massively constrained in the workplace. So, th- so that's a very, uh, you know, visible um, and, and sort of um, dramatic case, but um, it extends to all kinds of things. You know, basic rights of privacy in the workplace uh, are not allowed. Um, you could be searched in, in, in any way. Basic uh, freedoms of speech. Uh, are not allowed, not just in the workplace, but outside the workplace. Uh, and, you know, and this has become actually now people are beginning to pay more attention to this because we've had a lot of these Twitter um, cases where people say things on social media uh, and then they get fired for it summarily. Um, and yeah. you know, now uh, there's a lot of cases where you know the left is doing the same thing as the right, and and so on. But if we could just step back from some of those, you know, kinds of um, arguments on Twitter, you know, this is just a systemic problem in the United States, um, uh, where what people say on social media, what they do in the privacy of their own homes, um, you know, we, there are all kinds of court cases where, you know, people who engage in uh, group sex, are, you know, in their own home are fired at work. Um, I mean, in some ways, uh, the the recent Supreme Court case that just came out the other day about protecting um, LGBTQ, uh, workers, you know, part of its significance is that, um, you know, people were being fired for, um, uh, you know, engaging in gay sex, um, off the job. And, you know, that's not just an issue for LGBTQ people. That really is an issue for workers. Um, so the authoritarian structure of the workplace, both what you can be punished and regulated for at work, and then what you can be punished and regulated at work for things that you do off the job um, is intense. Um, and it is, again, this uh, this sort of vast arena um, that just goes unnoticed. And so one of the things that I think, you know, you asked about Medicare for all, Medicare for all at the beginning. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I would like to reframe, both Alex and I would like to reframe that as is, is a question of freedom, because... When you are dependent um, for your job on something like healthcare, uh, and you have, let's say, a family, but even if you don't, um, you know, quitting a job becomes a far. It's not just a loss of earning; it's a loss of you know basic health security. Um, and so, what Medicare for all, what universal healthcare is, I think, really about, is not about you know protecting people's health 
uh, uh, only. It's about securing emancipation um, for you know all people. Yeah, yeah. And you know you can multiply that you know from Medicare for all to things like pensions, uh, to things like education. You know, there's so many things that we have that are dependent upon both where we work and the conditions of our work. Um, and that that really constrains um, ultimately people's freedom. Their, you know, if you just go back to the old um, kind of million notion of freedom as a kind of experiments of living, um, uh, and there's lots of different kinds of freedom, but you know, just that basic notion of being uh, willing and able to kind of experiment with different designs of patterns of one's life, it is radically, radically constrained. Um, yeah, by, even, even that basic by, market, by, yeah, sorry, even that basic market freedom, I mean, the right wing and libertarian notion that you could just go and work somewhere else um, is seriously impeded by the fact that your health care is tied to your to your work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and just just on that, you know, I'm, I've been reading a lot of Smith and Keynes uh, lately for a piece I'm working on. Just the, just the, even that notion that you're free to go somewhere else to work, for, you know, forget even the, the health care part of this. You know, Smith realized early, he says this. And, it, and it's not just because of poor laws. Um, he says, you know, it's because it, it, people are, you know, labor is just not mobile like that uh, in the same way that goods are. You know, people have attachments. They are tied to a community. They're tied to a whole thing. So the idea that just pick up and go um, is just so fantastical, um, uh, you know, that you, when he doesn't even need to get into this issue of, of healthcare and all the rest of it. But I think it's important to bring that up because it, it also just shows you the systemic constraints. Mm -hmm. uh, that are put on, on on somebody just being able to up and quit. So I wanted to push you a bit further, Corey, on this question of the project for the left. So you've mentioned, um, or we've been talking about how Medicare for all might emancipate people from the um, constraints associated with the limitations on health security. And um, I mean, you know, that's um, very clear how that works in the US. Um, but I suppose at a more general level, is it that you're – are you making the case then for, say, workplace regulations? Is it about – and I suppose the question is, is it about freeing workers from work or freeing them in work? I think it's both. Uh, I think it's both. And you know, this is something that I think people – uh, go back and forth on the left, and it, and I, I hate to be that person who says it's not you know either or it's both and, but in this case it really is both. Um, you know, I I I, um, I mean Alex and I have a uh, you know have a, I think are a little bit in disagreement about this, but not in a you know a fundamental way. But but I think the the easiest answer to that is is that part of the freedom project is to have less work um, and to get rid of overwork um, and needless work to the extent that it can be gotten rid of. Um, so I think part of it is to be emancipated from work. Um, and I think also a big part of it is to be emancipated at work or in work. And I think both of those things are true. We need more leisure. Uh, we need more time and freedom in that sense. Um, but that's not, I think it's wrong. It's both not just impractical. I think it's just wrongheaded to say that that's the only thing. Because I also think people um, want to be free at work as well uh, and to have more voice on the job, uh, uh, both to speak up on matters unrelated to the job, but also matters that are related to the job. And I think, you know, that's part of a kind of a vision of emancipation uh, and human flourishing um, that requires both of those elements. 
and but that so that redounds immediately to the next kind of issue, which goes back to what we've been talking about. Given the weakness of organized labor today, where does the left go about achieving those two those kind of twofold aims you just mentioned? Yeah, uh, if I if I knew the answer to that question, um, I'd have a lot more influence. Um, you know, it's uh, it it's it's a it's it's a very very tough question. Um, but um, I don't I don't see you know a way around it. Honestly, um, I, I, I it has to be confronted. Um, and you know, I think um, we're beginning to see um, some kind of solidaristic action. I mean. I think this, I mean, before we get to, the, I mean, the de- the decline of labor, I mean, in, in some ways, your question is even harder uh, because it's not just the fact that organized labor is, you know, practically dead as an institution. It's all the political art of solidarity and the political knowledge that the labor yeah. movement uh, created uh, for, for, you know, for the world. Um and, you know, something that Alex and I talk about at the end that, you know, one of the things you actually learn at work, even forget even organized labor, but one of the things you learn at work is how to cooperate with people who are not people you would have chosen to cooperate with. Yeah, and absolutely. That is, you know, that is a fundamental, that is a fundamental political question, um, which makes the workplace, I think, you know, the most, you know, the most important classroom there is for politics. Uh, and that's what the labor movement then was able to, uh, to, to take and externalize onto the polity at large, you know, creating mass political parties uh, and all the combination of compromise and confrontation and articulating a common platform out of difference. Uh, you know, it, 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 it pains me when I hear people just reduce organized labor to these simplistic you know, slogans, whether you're pro or against the labor movement about, you know, class and so forth, because that's not what the labor movement was about. It was about creating political knowledge uh, of the arts of cooperation and, and, and the arts of confrontation that had not existed before. And that there was a reason why the right went after that, um, because it understood very clearly what a threat it was. And so many people in the civil rights movement came out of the labor movement. Um, not only the labor movement, but came out of that experience and, and, and began applying that to other domains of social life. And that's what we have lost. And that is what we have to recreate. And, you know, what's so frustrating about our moment, and this comes back to something we talked about earlier, is, you know, the right is so weak. Um, and uh, and part of what sustains that weakness is the weakness of the left. Um, and the, the disorganization and the, uh, the incoherence on the left and the inability to figure out the combination of, of freedom and discipline and organization and confrontation and compromise, all these different things that you know the labor movement didn't figure it out by any stretch, but had begun to think it through. And we've, we've lost that. And, and so, you know, the answer to your question, how do we get through, how do we get there is we just start. And I know that sounds very voluntaristic and kind of, uh, you know, throwing up your hands in, in, in hope and faith. Uh, but I, I don't, you know, I don't know any other way except, you know, to enter that classroom yeah. where there's repeated failure. And through that failure, 
um, you begin, you, you hopefully every time, if there's the right leadership on the ground, I don't think there's this, I don't think any of this is inevitable, but if there's the kind of right leadership on the ground that can kind of begin to learn the lessons uh, and start doing them better uh, the next time. Absolutely. That's extremely well put. And I think uh, highlighting that role of, you know, political education that you receive through struggle is really important and too often forgotten. Um, just to kind of wrap this up, um, and to maybe put a more positive, but potentially positive spin on it, uh, we have an unfortunate reputation of having kind of doomly ending. So, <laughs> so trying, our <laughs> trying our best to be positive here. Um, I think possibly two potentially positive things to emerge from the pandemic. I mean, if we can try to extract some positivity from it, um, is one, the focus on the value of the so-called essential worker, something which you referred to already earlier. And, um, you know, certain networks of spontaneous solidarity that have emerged um, in trying to, you know, kind of mutual aid to help people within a neighborhood as well as, uh, you know, workers retooling uh, their, you know, factories to produce medical equipment and things like that. Um, so, I mean, do you see a reason to be hopeful there? And I, a follow-on question, which I'm going to tack on immediately, um, <laughs> if you'll excuse me, is uh, how would you see this playing out in a situation of maybe, you know, 15 or even 20% unemployment in the U.S.? Yeah, so I think... Um I definitely um, do think, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm somebody who tends to be skeptical of theories of spontaneous solidarity. Uh, it, it goes against my organizational uh, and leadership sort of instincts and institutional <laughs> instincts. However, um, I have been, you know, really, um, you know, both, you know, thrilled and surprised um, by the kinds of access to solidarity that you've been talking about, um, uh, both, in, you know, in the workplace and then. Um, also, uh, in terms of, you know, fighting for kind of basic health and safety protections um, that are not there. And there's a um, and I connect this uh, to the to some of these rallies and protests we've been seeing. You know, I mean, anybody who's been on the left for the last 20 years has just had this sense of dreariness. You know, yet another protest march you have to go to, which is so ritualized and formalized and you hold up your signs and you say, no, there's no justice, no peace and there, blah, blah, blah. And one of the things that has been so impressive about, especially the first week of the protests is just how defiantly confrontational, again, not in a nihilistic or just, you know, defiance for the sake of defiance, which I don't believe in, but in the sense that we're not playing by your rules anymore. And we are not waiting for somebody else to do this. Um, and I just I do think there's a kind of more of a spirit of that uh, that's out there. Now, that is not by any means sufficient. And, you know, I, I think anybody who has any kind of romantic notions that somehow or another that gets us anywhere, you know, that's just not the case. But I do think there is um, a kind of cooperative spirit uh, that's also confrontational. Um, that, you know, I, my hope is, um, really breaks with, you know, not just neoliberalism and not just the Republican party and not just the democratic party, but just the sclerotic nature of political protest and the ritualized nature of it, um, where you don't think you're ever really going to do anything. You're just yeah. doing it out of duty. Mm -hmm. And I could be wrong. But my sense is part of these things that people are now seeing and, and, and unemployment figures that you only adds to this is this isn't uh, performative anymore. This is the you know, this is uh, this is something that's intended to do something. Now, what that 
intention is and what we you know we do and comes out of it, that's a very open question. But I do think there's a, a greater intensity and seriousness uh, that I'm seeing, which is, you know, come from the sense, you know, which is as old as the workers' movement itself. It's just, like, nobody's going to do this for you. Um, you have to do it yourself. Uh, and um, that does give me a certain um, degree of hope to the extent that I allow myself uh, uh, to have it. Mm. Well, I mean, that's fascinating and, and potentially quite encouraging to hear. Um, and as a whole, thank you, uh, Corey, for that. That's been uh, hugely insightful. So thank you for joining us for this. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. I apologize for going on so long. No, absolutely not. It, it could go on for, for much longer as far as I'm concerned. Hey, you want to hear Corey go on for a little longer? Uh, the bonus footage will be out in a week or two for patrons at patreon.com slash bungacast. Also coming up on our patron is uh, three articles in which the three hosts, myself, Alex, George, and Phil, discuss the global BLM protests. Plus, we've got a bonus footage from our upcoming episode on Saudi foreign proselytization with Prithika Baragur and a reading club uh, on the Aaron Reich's reevaluation of the PMC. All that to look forward to. Catch you later. Bye-bye.